chapter 16, as we go through this book, and we will be looking at the whole chapter. I don't know if it was announced, but we will be having a Good Friday service, probably at 10 a.m. at this church, and uh, wait for the email. I didn't, uh, it's Easter this next weekend coming up, right? You, you got the pastor something nice? I didn't think so. So you, you'll get your Easter Friday service when I start getting a bit more love around here. How about that? <laughs> anyway, I wish I could say I was joking. Um, so probably 10 a.m. so that you can have the rest of the day to yourselves, you know, enjoy life, sit out, frolic in the beautiful air and sunshine and all the rest. But please wait for the uh, email because someone will tell me, no, Mark, we can't do it at 10 a.m. The cleaner is coming to fix something and I'll have to change it to 11. So that'll be that. And then uh, Sunday will be business as usual. So Revelation chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds." The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle. On the great day of God the Almighty, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled, at, they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup 
of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones about one hundred pounds each fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Well, let us pray. O Lord, we thank you for your word and ask that it would not be a word that leads to judgment, but a word that leads to life. Do not leave us to ourselves. Do not leave us to praise anyone else except you and to own Christ as Lord in our hearts, even as we listen now. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. If I could somehow get your thoughts reading chapter 16 before me, I could probably uh, preach a fairly decent sermon because I'm hoping some of you would say, well, this is a clear recapitulation of a lot of the plagues in Egypt. That much was obvious and that would be uh, a good point to make. Some of you uh, might also see that there's a reflection very much so, I think, of Leviticus chapter 26, uh, my mother is visiting and she's been hounding me with theological questions this week, Mark, but I just don't understand Leviticus, you know, it's this and it's this and it's this, and I'm like, mother, I'm busy. <laughs> you know how we are, uh, some of you know my mom and you know me, mother, I'm busy, and, uh, but Mark, uh, Leviticus, yes, Leviticus, fine, I'll put it in the sermon. But actually, Leviticus chapter 26 speaks about these escalating judgments. And in chapter 26, verse 21, the Israelites are said, If you walk contrary to me and will not listen, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. So you've got Exodus in the background. You've got this idea of escalating judgments in the book of Revelation. Where does that come from? The idea is actually in Leviticus. And when you read Leviticus, what you find is that there are cycles of judgments and also that these judgments are meant to turn Israel back to the Lord. The judgments have a dual purpose. They are meant to turn people to the Lord. They do not always do that. And in fact, we have to ask ourselves another question. When the Israelites were led out of Egypt and the Egyptians were judged at the Red Sea crossing, was that when the judgment began of the Egyptians? And the answer is, of course, no. The judgment began of the Egyptians when Pharaoh hardened his heart against God's servant Moses. That was the formal judgment of the Egyptians. There are other types of judgments I imagine were present But that is when God decided he was going to judge the Egyptians. He hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. There were many miracles and signs and wonders. And it did not have the effect of causing Pharaoh to repent. It did not have the effect of causing him to humble himself under God's mighty hand. In fact, Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. The judgments continued to escalate. And then you have the Red Sea crossing. And what happens in the book of Revelation, we've seen with the seal and trumpet judgments and sometimes affecting one-third, now there's an escalation of judgments that take place. And 
There's a sense in which these judgments happen throughout world history, but there seems to be something here that's very final about these judgments, a sort of closing of history as we see at the end of the chapter. Now you'll notice there's seven bowls of wrath, and we're not going to go into detail into each bowl, but we will just briefly look at some of these bowls of wrath. The first being the painful sores that are on the beast's worshippers. You see that in verse 2. An angel pours out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Now that was the sixth plague in Egypt that affected man and beast. And I am not suggesting that this is going to be literalistically fulfilled one day. It may be, but it may not, where painful sores come upon people. This is usually highly symbolic language. But we don't say, well, this is so symbolic that really what we need to focus in on is the fact that one day the world will be unified together and we'll all sing Kumbaya and gather around and, you know, this symbolic language needs to be interpreted away so that it doesn't really mean anything. While it is symbolic language, you are meant to get the impression that these judgments are severe, they are final, and they are inclusive of everyone and anything that is against God. That is why there are so many different ways of expressing the judgments. Why seven? Seven is the perfect number. Why the fire? Why darkness? Why the rivers? Why the body? Because these are the components of this whole world in which it is under the bondage of sin. Now, the second bowl into the sea involves blood and death. And so a second angel pours out a bowl into the sea, and it becomes like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. This is the first plague in Egypt, in chapter 7, verse 21 of Exodus, you will get this idea now brought about in Revelation. So what is this bloodying of the sea? It is basically the destruction of the peoples that have served the beast. And you will see that the escalation even happens in terms of what happens. So notice that this bowl is poured out. But then notice in verse 4 to 7, the blood, something again from Egypt, is a beverage. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just are you. Now, this is absolutely vital to understanding these judgments. Your job to understand the judgments of God in Revelation elsewhere whether in world history or in the scriptures, is to have the attitude towards the judgments that these angels have. So notice verse 5. I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Now, why would we say God is just and holy? Because there is a reason for these judgments. So when you read chapter 16 and you see these judgments, there is inevitably, in every section, a reason for why God judges. He doesn't just judge for the sake of it. So we're told in verse 6, They have killed your people. They have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. 
So you are a Christian when you have the same attitude as God has towards what we all deserve. Judgment. You are not merely a Christian because you glory in the God of mercy. You are not merely a Christian because you glory in the God of love, though you should. You are not merely a Christian if you ascend a little higher and say, I glory in the God of holiness. You are only a Christian if you can glorify the God of the Scriptures who is love, who is goodness, who is patience, but also who is going to judge the wicked. You cannot make God into your own image. It is what they deserve. Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. You praise God for what He does. You praise God for everything He does. And you cannot not praise God. He have to praise God. So notice what ends up happening in the fourth bowl, the burning heat. And again, this language of burning heat, it involves the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. And this is the, the language of judgment. It's where we get the language of, of, of hell. And, and what this quite means, we don't know, but we know that they were scorched by fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. Now, this is what's truly remarkable. God will sometimes judge people and you would think that under the judgment of God they would cry out for mercy. Under the judgment of God they would say, I'm wrong. Under the judgment of God they would turn from their sins But what is so shocking about humanity and the perversity of sin is that many times the wicked under the judgment of God start to hate God even more. And I've thought to myself, maybe it's somebody you love, maybe it's a friend who doesn't know the Lord. What if the Lord was to bring some calamity upon their life? Maybe that would be the means by which He would bring them to the Lord. You probably thought that, right? Nobody wants to wish that on anybody. Nobody wants somebody to get terminally ill. But then if you were to think, well, they would serve the Lord if they became terminally ill, then you would see how God is using a type of temporal judgment to bring about a greater good. But the craziness of humanity is that God can actually bring a disaster upon our lives, and instead of repenting and turning to the Lord and crying out for mercy, we start to hate Him even more. So you either have, on the one hand, curse God and die, Job's wife, or you have Job who praises God. Shall we accept good from the Lord and not evil? And in the camp here, in verses 8-9, to you have curse God and die. You have those under the judgment of God hating God even more. They did not repent and give Him glory. And I understand that to mean that our repentance is a way of giving God glory. So the Christian faith is so remarkable because the way by which you become a Christian is by saying, I am in the wrong, I am not in the right. The way in which you can adhere to any other major world religion is to say, I will be in the right. I will do this. 
I will pray to the east. I will do it five times a day. I will do something good. And the Christian faith says, no, you need to say you're wrong and then you will be in the right. And those who say they're in the right will actually be in the wrong. It inverses everything about the natural man and how we react to these things. But it has always been about repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. As soon as Christ came into this world, his first message was what? When he sent out his apostles, when he preached John the Baptist, it was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Isaiah's time, repent. In Noah's time, he preached what? Repentance. And they didn't. What about Cain and Abel? What did Cain ultimately have to do? Acknowledge that he was wrong. The kingdom of heaven is present when there is repentance. I actually had a horrific week in terms of my kids' grades at school. Oh, Josh gets in the car and says, Yeah, Dad, I got 24 out of 25 on my Bible test. Well, you can't be perfect. But, you know... Am I a bad parent for asking, well, what was the one you got wrong? You know, some of you, maybe your kids aren't particularly bright, and you'd just be celebrating the 96%, is it? I don't know, is that, yeah, 96? That was, that was close. You're celebrating the 96%. I want to know where that 4% went. You get a 100% in phys ed and Bible, Josh. Everything else, whatever. So, He tells me, well, I said that the kingdom of heaven began when Jesus left heaven and came to earth. He goes, but the answer was actually when he died. I said, what? I want to speak to your teacher. No, no, dad, no, you know. Do you think they want me coming in with knowing Christ and all my books to the teacher saying, let's sit down and talk about this? No. But it was a good chance for me to actually talk about the kingdom of heaven, to go back and look in the New Testament, make sure I was right. And then I wondered, well, if the teacher could get this question so hopelessly wrong, he probably got a whole bunch of other questions wrong, and Josh got those right, so Josh could actually be at around 50%. <laughs> so that, I didn't go into the teacher or look at the exam, because I didn't want to see any more. Ah, the joys of raising children. But you go back and you start to look and you realize that's really the essence of the Christian faith. And that's what Luther did. He nailed the 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, allegedly. Sorry to ruin any problems for those who think it really did. Probably did happen, may not have, doesn't matter. We have the 95 theses. And one of his theses was the Christian life is a life of repentance. It is a life of owning that you are in the wrong. That's the Christian life. And here, they are marked out by their failure to repent and give him glory. So the fifth bowl shows another escalation. The angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. You may think that the boils or the drinking of the blood is an escalation, but when you are in darkness and your kingdom is in darkness, That is the judgment that has come into the world, that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And 
Look at this. They nod their tongues in anguish. So they are suffering. And what are they doing as they are suffering? Verse 11. They cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. They are suffering and they are cursing God. And people sometimes wonder, well, why is it that hell will be forever and heaven will be forever? Heaven will be forever because we will be eternally praising God and there will be no grounds upon which He would not want us doing that. One of the reasons. But hell will be forever because those in hell are not going to sit by going, I'm really sorry, let me out. I know I'm wrong. What I did was evil. I repent. You mustn't think of people suffering in hell as having that attitude. You need to think of people in hell screaming at God with such venom and hatred and blaspheming Him and cursing Him so that what happened to Christ on the cross is continually now happening in heaven, where, in hell, where they're cursing Him. They hate Him. That's why. It is not a place of neutrality. It is not a place where people want out. It is a place where people continue to hate the God they hated their whole lives. Darkness. But then there's a sixth bowl. Quite interesting because as this angel pours out the bowl on the great river Euphrates, which historically was a river that kept armies from invading, and when the river is dried up or pulled back, it allows the invasion of an army So it prepares the way for the kings from the east and Rome would have been sensitive to the Parthians coming from the east to attack them. It was always a worry of Rome. So that's the language there. But notice he says, coming out of the unholy trinity, the mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And notice verse 16 where this is. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Well, Has anyone ever been to Armageddon? Uh, The answer is no. I was actually in Israel, and I was standing at Mount Carmel where Elijah battled the prophets of Baal, and you can actually look on the plains of Megiddo. It's flat. And what's interesting is that Armageddon, if you were to take one transliteration of it from the Hebrew, it's Har Magedon, which is Mount of Megiddo. Now, the problem with Mount of Megiddo is that you are calling a flat plain a mount. It's cognitive dissonance for you psychological people, right? It's the mount of the plain. It doesn't make any sense, which reinforces perhaps that the symbolic language is not meant to portray some literalistic thing. So the pastor I was with from Israel said to me, as we looked on the Mount of Megiddo, Armageddon in his mind, which wasn't a mountain, he says, ah, this is where Armageddon is going to take place. And I thought, really? Is this high school? You know, I'm going to get my buddies and we're going to meet here and we're going to have a battle that we're going to like, have a fight? Or what, what's going to happen Like, really, Christians are all going to gather and have a battle. You've been watching Narnia, and you think this is what's going to happen out on this plane. Can you imagine Christians going to a battle that actually involves weapons and stuff? 
And then we see, oh, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile and all that stuff. We'd be like, sorry, we're, we're going to lose this one. It's crazy. I think some people really think they're going to get on a horse or something and go and fight to the death. The battle is way more intense than that, by the way. And actually, what scholars have recognized is that in the Old Testament, the idea is that Jerusalem, and I think this is still symbolic, is the place of the final battle, but actually, Harmageddon could also mean something else, Har Moed, which is actually the mount of assembly, the mount of gathering. And what's actually being said here is that they assembled them at that place that in Hebrew is called the mount of gathering. And so what you have is the gathering of all of the wicked in the world, assembling together against the Lord's people. And the Lord's people are fighting against these powers by our prayers, by the gospel, by the spiritual weapons of warfare that God has given us. And the victory is ours because where is our mount? Our mount is Zion. Our mount is in heaven. We've been raised into the heavenly places with Christ. So the battle's completely unfair. We've already won. They gather together to assemble against God's people. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. And here in Revelation, same thing. They have conspired against your Holy One and His people. They have gathered together. The world hates God's people. The beast and the dragon and the false prophet with their demonic spirits hates God's people, lies to God's people, wants to deceive God's people, and will do anything in their power to ruin God's people. But we've already ascended on high. We are already seated in the heavenly places. We've already won. There is promise and fulfillment. And the promise is that we have won. And we await that fulfillment. And that is the sixth bowl. The final bowl is the earthquake that shatters the great city. And this is probably, I think, basically the idea that we're coming to the end of history now and there's going to be a renewal of the heavens and the earth. And the earth is going to be renewed. But before the earth can be renewed, it has to go through its judgment. Whether what we read in Second Peter chapter 3 with the burning of the elements or here with the shaking of the world, with the earthquake, unlike an earthquake that has ever been seen on earth. You see that in verse 18. And as this happens, to heighten what takes place in this judgment? Great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. See that? They still hate God in the midst of judgment. I don't think literal 100-pound Balls of ice will fall, though it would be a remarkable scene. As a seven-year-old in South Africa, I will never forget the day I look outside and golf balls, bigger than golf balls of hail, are flying down, smashing windows, going into the pool, everywhere, you name it. It was destruction. 100-pound hailstone. The idea is not necessarily that 100-pound balls of ice are going to fall, but that God is going to absolutely destroy this earth before he renews it, and there will be nothing left. And all of history will meet that destiny where you either are a recipient of this judgment 
or not. Now, I had a bit of unbelief happen this week. You know, there's been some people coming to the church in Surrey. Uh, I've been really excited about different new people coming, and I thought, oh, Mark, if you preach on this judgment stuff again, there's no way they're coming back. Yeah, I thought that. Now, don't get all snooty with me. Oh, pastor, you should be a man of faith and trust God's word. Just walk a mile in someone else's shoes, you know, and you see it's judgment again. And you go, maybe I just slip in a nice little sermon, you know, something on the love of God. Just, you know, settle things down a bit. I just thought, you idiot. You idiot. You're always trying to help God out just a little, aren't you? shape things a little, you know? I mean, it's not like you get to the book of Revelation and then we say, oh, pause, take a few weeks off, settle yourself down. You read this in one sitting, you preach it, there's no breaks. And the point that I'm trying to make is that God knows what He's doing. If God has to emphasize another round of judgments, it's because He needs to do that because we don't believe it's going to happen and... We need to be told again and again that this really isn't a world of purely naturalistic forces just working themselves out and that we're just biology. That there is a God in heaven who is furious with the wicked right now and that He will judge the wicked and that you better not be those described as wicked. But on the other hand, what I also thought about was how loving God is in all of this, because there is still time. Jesus hasn't yet returned. There is time to repent. The day is not final yet. And God does all of these good things to bring about repentance. He makes His reign to, sh- to fall upon the just and the unjust. In Acts chapter 14, as Paul is being worshipped, and he says, why are you doing these things? We are men of like nature with you, but we have good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, that you should repent. You see? That's what he's concerned about right away. Repent. The God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now, how do you get someone to repent? There's a number of ways. What does Paul do? In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet, he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. How do you get someone to repent? Speak about the goodness of God in what he has given to you. Romans 2.4 I know someone sitting here is one of the verses she quotes to me a lot. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? God's goodness, his patience, his forbearance. Not knowing that God's kindness is what? God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. This is the point of preaching the gospel is you emphasize how good God is, not just to His people, but to everybody. And when you speak to people, how good is God? 
How patient is God that he hasn't destroyed this world? How good is he that he gives you air to breathe, that he gives you rain so that you can have food, so that he gives you many things to make your heart merry? You should repent because you didn't bring yourself into existence or any of these things. But why don't people repent? Because they are proud. Pride affects all of us. Even as Christians, indwelling sin, it affects us. There was a story I heard this week. Someone I know, he was talking about his house and how the neighbors had looked at a wall that divides their, their homes. And they're noticing the cracking in the wall perhaps taking place. It's been about 35 years, you know, this wall has been built. It's, it's not like they used to make them, you know, in Rome. Uh, and uh, so this person started getting really worried because the neighbor has nothing else to do. You know, they sit at home all day, retired, and just look at the wall and look at all the problems with the wall. I don't have time for that right now. Could be holes in my roof, I wouldn't know. So this person who's worried, they're also getting old. So they freak out and think, I need to call my lawyer. I mean, we're talking about fixing a wall. And the next minute, lawyers are being called to solve this. So I had to try and step in and, you know. And he didn't trust the neighbor. But then the neighbor and him had a discussion. Amazing. Before the lawyer was called, before, you know, Armageddon, we... They have a discussion, and then he sends a text to someone else who I know and says, you know, I actually misjudged the neighbor. He's a great guy. I was wrong. And I said to this person, you know, and he, there's just two of them that live in the house. I said to this person, well, you know what? It's nice to see a bit of humility coming from you. And he said, well, there's only one person in our house who that's going to come from. I said, you just ruined it. You just ruined it. He's talking about himself. So I'm going to tell everyone about this. He says, oh no, you must. So now he's back to humble. And that's the Christian life, in a sense. We take one step forward, one step back. One step forward, one step back. But at the end of the day, you still need to repent. And you need to repent of your things that you have done so well sometimes because of how you have viewed those things you've done well. Sometimes more than the things you
All you need to do is repent. All you need to do is say you're sorry. And I have to ask you this very plain and simple question. Did you repent this week? Is there something you can say you went to God and said, I am in the wrong? Because that's really the one big difference between the godless and the godly. <clears throat> Who says they're wrong the most? It's the godly. That's the irony. What have you said I'm wrong about? What have you said I'm sorry? And how have you turned to the Lord and glorified Him? Because you know nothing in your hands you bring. Simply to the cross you cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul eye, not good eye. Foul eye to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and for your goodness and your love. And we pray that the goodness of God will lead us to repentance and others to repentance. That we would see how much we have received from you and how little we offer back to you. Oh Lord, bring about repentance, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. We have the offering before we sing our final hymn.